Welcome to episode 16 of Tahir Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Aaron Snyder, Assistant Professor in the Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Governance uh, of Government and Public Service at the Texas A&M University. Uh, Dr. Snyder's most recent book, uh, Marketing Democracy, The Political Economy of Democracy Aid in the Middle East, uh, published by Cambridge University in March of 2022, uh, this year, uh, <laughs> building an extensive fieldwork archi- archival research uh, Recently declassified uh, government documents, she shows how democracy aid can work to strengthen rather than challenge authoritarian regimes. Welcome, Dr. Snyder. Thank you so much, Abdullah, for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be with you today. And morning for me still, but I guess into evening for you in Egypt. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's five p.m. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Dr. Snyder, why don't we before we get into like the the gist of it? Why don't we like kind of. Uh, define some very simple terms so that you know the average listener that's not an academic or so forth can kind of grasp what we're talking about so what is democracy aid yeah so democracy aid can mean a whole host of things there are lots of definitions uh, that scholars and development practitioners um, have given to describe this particular kind of aid so broadly democracy aid is considered uh, you know a subset of foreign assistance if you will so general foreign assistance Um, but democracy aid itself uh, many scholars have um, have said is a specific form of aid channeled for particular kinds of activities. So these activities can include aid for um, civil society, sort of broadly defined to help support uh, civil society actors, organizations, etc. It can be aid towards um, elections to help support um, elections, uh, voter education, etc. It can be assistance to help um, support media. Um, so you know to enhance. Uh, journalism, media activities uh, with the idea of uh, expanding, you know, um, free expression or encouraging free expression rather. Um, Political party support in some cases, so supporting um, uh, the development of political parties around the world um, and giving tools and resources to help different actors um, uh, understand the function of political parties uh, in a democratic system, etc. so some of those activities, um, or those are that's one set of definitions for democracy aid. Um, other actors also conceptualize democracy aid as aid to support uh, what we might might call more social democratic processes. So this might include aid for education, uh, thinking about social welfare programs. Uh, so it's a different way of thinking about supporting what many scholars have you know said are the foundations of a democracy. Uh, so again, some people think conceptualizing that as aid for maybe more procedural definitions of democracy, so more political forms of support. Uh, And then other scholars and donor states in particular who, when they think about democracy aid, um, they're thinking about aid uh, for, you know, again, arguably what some scholars have said are more foundational issues with democracy, uh, such as education, social welfare programs, et cetera. And your book um, kind of handles both Egypt and Morocco, U.S. democracy aid in Egypt and Morocco. So why did you choose Egypt and Morocco in particular? Yeah, so um, I think I'll just back up a little bit and, and it might be, yeah, it might be useful um, just for uh, your listeners to know a little bit about briefly about the motivations for this book. So, you know, um, I usually say as a starting point, um, the sort of origins of this book go back to maybe 2006 or 2007. And this is when I was beginning uh, my uh, doctoral research. Um, and so around this time frame, maybe when many listeners were very, very small children or, you know, 
otherwise. Um, there was a, a, a big focus in the United States in particular on democracy assistance, right? So this was in the wake of 9-11. Uh, this is when the administration of then uh, President George W. Bush um, really thought that the way of um, responding to what was happening in the post 9-11 environment uh, was to have um, a much more aggressive focus on democracy promotion in the Middle East in general. So this is after the US invasion of Iraq. Um, this is, you know, we, we start seeing really uh, expansive uh, um, funding for democracy aid programs in the Middle East in particular. These programs, it should be said, were in existence, um, you know, since the early 90s in general. And that was keeping in with the trend of what the US was doing in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So really trying to push for more democracy aid from the early 1990s. But we didn't really see um, uh, a much more expansive focus on democracy aid in the Middle East um, until again, after 9-11, um, after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, et cetera. So in 2006, 2007, when I was first beginning my research, there was a renewed interest um, by scholars um, to understand how this aid was working on the ground, right? To, to really know like, okay, well, if a donor, if the United States, if the, if, uh, the German government are spending money on democracy aid, does it actually help in supporting and in, 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 you know, in getting us to democratization, if you will, in a simplistic fashion? So there are a number of really sophisticated studies that came out trying to really get at this connection to understand if there was a connection. Um, and these studies were extremely, again, sophisticated, you know, cross-national studies trying to assess. And I'm, there's one study I'm, I was intrigued by in particular that was just focused on um, funding from the US Agency for International Development. So this is USAID. It's the primary US agency uh, that deals with foreign assistance in general, but also particularly democracy assistance. So they were looking at the impact of USAID's programs worldwide. Um, and you know there were 700 variables, again, very sophisticated. Um, and the authors of this study in particular concluded uh, that spending on democracy works. Um, but um, it didn't seem to work in what they call difficult contexts um, like the Middle East. Um, and so the, the question then again for me was very much like, okay, well, I have some issues with methodologically with um, how much this study can actually get at what they're trying to measure. But also, why does this particular region seem like such an anomaly compared to other regions under the study? So part of the answer to that um, question was, you know, well, scholars of the Middle East might think, rightly so, that security is part of the equation, right? Particularly in the, in the, the relationship between the United States and uh, the U.S.'s relationship with regimes in the region. And that's certainly, you know, part of the story. Um, but there seemed to be again, something missing with that. So this was the motivation initially, right? To understand why this exception um, existed. Um, you know, again, this is a time when there's lots of resources um, uh, being sent to states throughout the region. Um, lots of uh, rhetoric in particular from the United States about the importance of doing this. Um, but there was also a more fundamental question that seemed to be missing um, from the literature on democracy aid, particularly in the Middle East. And that question is, well, why would authoritarian regimes, right? Why would an authoritarian regime even allow, you know, this form of aid to operate, right? So many uh, scholars of democracy aid say, of course, that the intention, right, of this aid is to challenge, 
you know, the status quo, right? It's to pressure regimes inherently. This is the function of this aid, right? So that seemed to be something obvious that was missed, but that was also part of the story, right? So if states in the region have been allowing this aid, you know, how does that help us understand why this aid may or may not be working um, and what's going on behind that too? So this was the sort of motivation of, you know, behind the study. So, um, you know, your question about why Egypt and Morocco. Um, so initially I'd spent um, a significant amount of time in Egypt at that point, um, you know, years prior to starting field work, um, had spent a lot of time at AUC in particular studying Arabic uh, through various programs uh, over the summers. And, um, you know, so a natural inclination to kind of think about Egypt, but also Egypt was very much um, sort of the center of the US's efforts in the Arab world as well too. Um, so that was a natural starting point. And it was one of the states that had received um, some of the highest funding from the United States for democracy programming, again, from 1990 up until, let's say, you know, the mid 2000s at this point. Um, I included Morocco as well, um, also because Morocco had received a significant amount of, of funding as well. And Morocco, of course, as you know, uh, is a very different state than Egypt, right? It's a different structure of government, different system, different so size, et cetera. Uh, and so part of the, the sort of question I had was, okay, well, does regime matter in this case? Does knowing something about, um, does something about the differences between the regimes help us understand maybe how the state is working? what negotiations are like between the US and each respective uh, state. Um, and also both states have very different uh, strategic relationships with the United States. So uh, again, most uh, listeners uh, to your podcast probably know, of course, that the US has had uh, over the almost, well, I'm dating myself now, um, nearly four decades of having a very particularly strong strategic relationship with Egypt. Um, and they have, a, I would say, a a strong security relationship with Morocco as well too, but it pales in comparison uh, to that, you know, that the U.S. has with Egypt too. So again, thinking about, you know, maybe this is also part of the story. So a difference in a strategic importance uh, could be part of the story as well too. So in a nutshell, th this, this was the motivation for the, choosing those two cases. And what are some of your findings, you know, what did you find out throughout your research and so forth? Yeah, so in a nutshell to this question, why isn't it working, right? So what I, what I did basically, um, you know, as I mentioned to um, other colleagues as well um, over the last couple of weeks and sort of talking about this book um, is that, again, at the very beginning of this project, I had the very naive idea basically that I could, I could understand what was going on if I could simply gather the data and information, right? If I could gather all of the data on every project uh, that had been undertaken in both countries, like the fine, like the minute details, right? So what kind of projects were getting funded? Um, what sort of actors were executing these projects? So what kinds of contractors, et cetera? Um, and that data didn't really exist. Um, and it's not, you know, because of some nefarious reason. It's, you know, not surprisingly governments, bureaucracy, uh, you know, information is may maybe not as uh, easily readily available, but it's out there. And so that also was part of the story too, right? Because I think many of us, when we think about democracy assistance or aid for democracy, you know, we think about the intention of that aid and we think that, you know, the details of those programs should be transparent probably. Um, and a lot of that information was really challenging um, for me to find at the outset. And so, again, that was sort of, that caused me to retool my research approach um, and to not only try and still gather that information, um, but also 
try and figure out why the, re the reasons for why that, that information was so difficult to find. So this sort of led me down the path of thinking about, well, maybe this is, there's more to this, more to this story than just simply gathering the data, right? Um, but what can we learn from the actors who've been working on these projects over time? Um, and so um, one of the things that I offer in this book is a new way to think about understanding um, how this aid works. Um, and so in more academic language, um, I basically propose a, a, polit a political economy framework uh, that looks at how ideas, institutions, and interests that are engaged with this aid over time have helped shape um, and mediate the form and function of these programs on the ground. So what that means in practice is that I'm really looking at how, again, different actors that have been working on this aid um, have understood democracy, right? Um, how um, bureaucratic incentives and obstacles change what's changed the sorts of programs that we see on the ground. And so um, I spoke with a whole host of actors um, over, uh, over several years of work. So I, the book is based on not just um, archival uh, documents, declassified government documents, um, but it's also based on over 150 interviews um, in Morocco, Egypt, uh, and Washington, DC, um, with a whole host of actors who've been working on this aid. So that includes, you know, the diplomats, American diplomats that have been working on this aid with the State Department, with USAID, um, with um, contractors who've been undertaking these projects. And so um, these include for and not-for-profit organizations um, that are actually doing the work on the ground. Um, they also include uh, Egyptians and Moroccans who've been working within some of these donor agencies as well, too, because they have a wholly different perspective um, on what's going on, um, as well as, you know, interviews and discussions with government officials uh, within, with both states as well, too. Um, so um, there's a very, um, a very illuminating, um, it was very illuminating to talk with, you know, this great variety of actors to learn what was going on. And so in a nutshell to your question of what I've learned, um, the short answer is, you know, we can understand why this aid hasn't really worked in the way that we think it has, because, um, you know, what I found was evidence in both Morocco and Egypt of many of these democracy programs being diluted and watered down, right? So one of the findings uh, in this book um, is that democracy aid you know, essentially functions as negotiated deals between donor states, so in this case, the United States and recipient regimes. So the, with the Egyptian government um, and with the Moroccan government as well too. Um, so if they're negotiated deals, then this means that the governments do have a say, right, in that aid. Um, and so what I document over time is this process of dilution that happens, right? So as one example from the, let's say from the mid 1990s, um, USAID officials had this very ambitious idea uh, for a democracy program. And not surprisingly, they met with resistance from their counterparts in the Egyptian government. Um, and so the United States is not in a position where it can you know, order the Egyptian government what to do on this obviously, right? So we see evidence basically of a back and forth, right? Of the Egyptian government coming back and saying, you know, we're not happy with this, this dynamic of it. In some cases, the objections are, I think that they found it, uh, elements of it threatening or and objectionable, objectionable for other reasons. And, you know, the, some of the AI, USAID uh, employees who were working on this project 
wanted to challenge and push back more um, with their counterparts in the Egyptian government, but they were essentially told not to, right? And this is, gets back to the strategic relationship, which is that you know some in the United States felt, look, we don't wanna disrupt things, um, we want to keep this relationship uh, solid and, you know, value this ultimately. Uh, and so there were lots of many frustrated AID diplomats during this time frame who were like, well, if, if in the process of this back and forth negotiation, the programs are being diluted, right, down to the point where they're not really doing or achieving our objectives, then what's the point, right? Um, and so we see evidence in some in both places, actually, in both Egypt and Morocco, where in the process of the, this negotiation of this back and forth, uh, the programs became diluted. Um, and in some cases, the programs, again, rather than challenge, rather than challenge both governments, they ended up strengthening them uh, in many ways. So enhancing the efficiency, uh, let's say, of, uh, of the Egyptian government or the Moroccan government as well, too, which, you know, you can probably appreciate is, is kind of a perverse you know, side of this as well, too. Um, that's one of the big findings. Um, the other element I would say is that, you know, there are lots of, of people who um, want this aid uh, to work better. There are many people even today uh, that, you know, are advocating for the United States to devote much more funding to this aid, not just in the Middle East, but, but globally as well. Um, and in my, in my research, I found that there are, you know, significant obstacles in you know, Washington DC with how this aid works, right? So there are lots of well-meaning people who I think wanna make this aid work and they want this aid to reflect what citizens, right? What Egyptians or Moroccans on the ground actually want. But because of the way the foreign aid bureaucracy is structured in DC, you know, it's structured in a way to basically not privilege this. Um, and again, so one of the things I found illuminating in my work is you know, there, and one of the criticisms has always been um, that this aid doesn't reflect, let's say, what civil society and actors, so what civil society actors in Egypt really want, or Morocco. Um, this reflects more what outside actors who have no idea how Egypt, uh, what the politics in Egypt are, what Egyptians want. It has no connection, basically, with, um, with you know, what's on the ground, what's happening on the ground uh, in Egypt, right? And so if you, again, the idea being, if you really wanted to make this aid responsive to what citizens on the ground want actually wanted and cared about, um, then one would change the way um, or the, change the incentive structure for how this aid uh, works. And, you know, during revolutionary Egypt, 2011, 2012, um, even until like 2013, how has that differed? Because there was this, you know, this uh, gap where, you know, it was basically, you, you, you wrote about that towards the end of your book, I think it was the last chapter. Um, where they didn't seek approval from the government, yeah, because they thought to you know fill that uh, um, that vacuum, yeah. So how did that end up? I mean, I, I know how it ended up. But... Yeah, for the, for the purpose of the listener. <laughs> yeah. So again, the the focus of the book is really looking at that period um, between uh, nineteen ninety and 2000, 2008, between two thousand eight two thousand ten. I submitted, so this book is, re, is based off of my uh, uh, doctoral research, which I submitted, I think maybe a week before um, uh, Mohammed Bouazizi set himself on fire in Tunisia, right? So right as you know, the Arab uprisings are, are beginning. Um, so things were changing, my ways of even thinking about this project were changing, but I was in Cairo at this time frame, and I was interested to, interested to see, given you know the, this historic moment that's happening, um, in the Middle East, in the world, 
what the United States's response would be, right? Um, and you know, not just the U.S., but how other um, donor states were responding uh, to you know this important transitional moment. And again, you know, the U.S. Um, many of your listeners might know, of course, even before 2011. The relationship between the United States and the Egyptian government over its democracy programs, I mean, I wouldn't call it warm at all, right? There was always tension with that and something I think that the Egyptian government tolerated. Um, again, the nature of the strategic relationship between both governments, you know, sort of allows some things, some activities to go, but this was something um, uh, that the U.S.'s counterparts in the Egyptian government were not happy about and had a great deal of apprehension about. Um, so in 2011, you know, many people are thinking, okay, well, this is a moment now um, where we might see something change. And, you know, I will say that there's, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. Um, so in, 2000, in 2011, or three months after the, um, uh, the uprising began in Egypt, um, USAID announced this uh, transitional um, support project. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, it was a program that allocated $70 million to support change broadly defined in Egypt. Um, and again, this was meant to be the, um, the one aspect of the US's response to try and aid what was going on in the ground. And, you know, I spoke with a great deal of people after the fact, you know, a, a year later, you know, after kind of being there as, as an eyewitness to what was going on to understand how people were think, thinking of things. And, you know, there was a genuine, I think there was a genuine desire in the United States to, to try and do something good. Um, and I, but I think my thoughts at the time were, okay, this seems, this seems like a good idea, um, but the approach seems really problematic um, and in some ways naive to what was actually going on in the politics at that time. And what I mean by that is that, you know, up until 2010, uh, the end of 2010, um, the Egyptian government knew more or less um, where aid was going. It was a part of the relationship that, you know, AID would inform um, um, the government about where aid was going. Um, and even when they started changing that aspects of the democracy aid program to have more direct grants, right? So instead of going through the government, um, the United States would directly fund particular organizations. And that was something that was uh, contentious uh, before 2011. So after 2011, um, I think people within USAID naively thought that just because, you know, uh, Hosni Mubarak is gone, like it's a totally new system, um, which for those of us that were there, that those of, you know, obviously that live there now, you know, the, the structure of power didn't really change effectively, right? The head of the government was gone, right? Um, but the, the system, the regime, everything was, hadn't changed. The same actors were still in place. The same powerful um, institutions were obviously, you know, hadn't gone anywhere. Um, so the U.S. thought that okay, if we, um, you know, we can just we can we, we're not obliged to to follow the rules, you know, in the relationship before 2011, and basically uh, decided that they weren't going to go through the government, that they were going to directly fund organizations. Um, so in I think around March of 2011, March and April of 2011, they announced this program and they did so to their credit, I think transparently in, all, in the state newspapers in Egypt, um, in both English and in Arabic, announcing that you know, the US has this program and if you're interested in applying for a grant, you can come to these informational sessions 
um, at the USAID's mission in Cairo. Um, so I went to one of these sessions and it was very interesting. I mean, it was mostly, I would say primarily, um, I didn't get a chance, I had a scheduling conflict, so I couldn't go to the, the, the session in Arabic. Um, so I went to the one in English um, and because of that session, I think there were mostly um, uh, foreign uh, representatives from different foreign organizations and whatnot. And so it was a very boring discussion about, you know, here's what you do to apply for a grant. But one, one gentleman at that meeting asked the AID person um, conducting it, you know, can you tell us, can you tell us how much money has already been given, you know, for civil society aid? And can you tell us, you know, which organizations have already gotten this money? You know, and he's asking this question because he doesn't, if he's applying for a grant, he doesn't want to apply for something that the money's already been given for, right? Um, so he's just asking for this reason. Um, and I remember like kind of sitting up in my chair, um, you know, cause I was curious myself and the, the person that was running this meeting became very, um, he was a bit skittish and he was like, well, we don't, you know, we've given this amount of aid, but I don't want to tell, I don't want to share which organizations have received it. You know, again, thinking about the security dimension and protecting those organizations. And I remember thinking, being uncom very uncomfortable with this answer because, you know, those of us who work on in this particular circle on democracy aid pretty much know who the big actors are in this area and who is going to be given like an advantage at this moment. And because this money is US government funding, you can pretty easily find, you know, you can find where the aid has been given. And so sure enough, when I went home that night after jumping through a couple of hoops online, yeah. you know, I found out which organizations had received it. It wasn't shocking at all, but I remember being uncomfortable with this, right? Because at this moment, right, in a transitional moment, um, you, my feeling was you wanna err on the side of full transparency completely, right? Because there are so many moving pieces um, and there are so many ways I think that um, things can be taken wrong. Right, so ways that you know the government can you know use information to try and tarnish the work of organizations, um, and you know again an argument by, made by many people that unless you, unless you can be fully transparent with this aid, in such a politically sensitive moment at a, you know in a formally restrictive space, then you know there's some ethical questions with this. And so anyway, this is a lot of details on this moment, but after this, we saw of course uh, the trial, uh, the NGO trial that would happen uh, and that was initiated maybe I think six months after this and that would drag on for years as well too. Um, and I, I don't know that it wouldn't have happened um, if this was handled in a different way, but it underscored to me many problems. Again, uh, credibility issues that the US has already had with this aid over many years. Um, the vulnerabilities I think that Egyptian civil society actors really faced at this moment too. Um, and again, just sort of thinking about, you know, in this historic moment, are there better ways to approach this kind of aid, et cetera? So now, I mean, when we talk about democracy aid in Egypt, I mean, this is, it's, it's a pretty much non-existent, um, especially from the United States. How about Morocco? How is it looking like? Yeah, so Morocco is, um, again, um, you know, it was a completely different environment to work in than Egypt completely different, um, you know, obviously a much, a much smaller uh, population-wise state than, than Egypt uh, and much quieter, right? <laughs> the, difference, 
the difference between doing research in Rabat, Rabat versus Cairo, obviously, is is totally different. Um, so again, we were talking about you know you have you being from Alexandria, so being Rabat was nice because you can be by the you know by the ocean as well in this. But uh, besides those minor minor bits, uh, the space uh, for democracy aid actors is, uh, is has been completely different in Morocco. Um, so there was much more um, openness uh, to some of, uh, of these traditional democracy aid activities, um, which is not to say that things were completely great either. I mean, there was, uh, there had been resistance from the government, uh, suspicion towards many of the groups uh, that were um, that were taking place as well too. And I think. Again, that we see elements, I show this in the book, where again, even though Morocco isn't strategically as important to the United States as Egypt, some elements of that security relationship relationship still affect the actual um, the actual uh, execution of democracy aid on the ground, right? So what I mean by this is at different points, the United States wanted to do particular kinds of democracy aid programs or think about them in different ways. And um, the government would basically push back and say, "Look, you know, we have we have other we have other um, uh, other allies, right? So the relationship with uh, the French, for example, and uh, the Spanish and other European actors, you know, just, just if we think about trade relations, is far stronger, right, than its relationship with the United States. And so that has given the the Moroccan government or the the Moroccan regime rather much more room and space to, I think, to challenge and push back." Um, on the U.S.'s programs. And so the U.S. has been very cognizant of this and that's, that constrains, I think, what the U.S. is willing to do and how far the U.S. is willing to push, um, has been willing to push Morocco in this area as well. And do you like personally think that there is a way um, in which the U.S. could actually push for democracy and implement um, democracy aid that would actually like contribute to real change or do you uh see you know the us pulling out a better option than just like aiding because you were just arguing that democracy aid uh so far at least uh, um at least as far as like the late 2000s um it's been supporting incumbent authoritarian regimes so do you think the us should pull out altogether or do you think they there's another way that aid could be handled yeah, so I think it's a, it's a great question. It's a really it's a it's it's a really challenging question to answer, frankly, right? Because I've I've been asked this by different uh, different people um, uh, over you know over the last few weeks, over the last year, about this sort of like okay, you know, we're we're seeing it's not as impa impactful as it could be. Does that mean you know an actor like the U.S. should just stop it altogether? And so, and also, how do you know if this aid is working, right? And this is a really hard question because for people like people that are diplomats in USAID, they have to sell these programs to people in Washington who don't know anything, right, about, you know, the politics of what's going on, um, you know, in Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia, wherever. They're, you know, state sen or senators and representatives who are, you know, beholden to their constituents in North Carolina, New York, California, wherever, right? So someone at USAID each year has to go to Congress and ask for money, right? Um, to fund whatever sort of programs that they're doing. And so a question that someone in Congress might, you know, have for that AID person is, okay, well, how much did democracy improve in Egypt from, you know, last year to this year, you know, and you don't have to be an expert on democracy aid to know this is a really like, this is 
I mean, what a ridiculous question, right? But they have to, they have to, you know, try and sell to this person, you know, the logic of, okay, well, democracy is a generational project or democracy aid is, is something that we can only uh, see an impact for, you know, after five or 10 years. That's hard to sell to someone who wants to see, you know, measurable results from something, right? And so this is, this is a tension that's always existed in these programs. Um, and so um, many people, for example, have said like, look, in maybe a hybrid regimes and authoritarian regimes, places where the political system is very restrictive, you know, focusing on political forms or procedural forms of democracy as part of a democracy aid program, maybe this, is, maybe this doesn't make sense. Maybe it makes sense if you have just a little space to work as a donor, maybe it's more useful to focus on education programs, development programs, et cetera. Again, thinking about conceptualizing these programs as part as supporting the foundations of democracy towards you know, thinking about the quality of the democracy that you wanna support. Um, so again, thinking about just the kind of space that you can work in. Um, one of the things, as I'm sure you can appreciate uh, from the book and just from you know, um, your familiarity with this aid, in general, and just the U.S.'s, you know, um, reputation in the Middle East is that, you know, obviously the United States has a credibility problem. Um, fixing the, I mean, I think what happened, as I described to you after 2011 with AID and the Egyptian government, didn't really help matters much. Um, and it unnecessarily, I think, you know, uh, fostered suspicion, even more suspicion about what the U.S. was doing. So I think that there's a huge credibility problem, frankly, uh, impacting the U.S.'s efforts to say nothing of the domestic equation of this, which I just mentioned too, like these obstacles. So many people have said, okay, well, look, if the U.S., you know, if the U.S., if there's no enthusiasm for supporting this aid financially in Washington, and we know that there's a credibility problem that's going to make it difficult for the U.S. to maybe work in the way it wants to, maybe this is an argument for, you know, thinking about more multilateral approaches to democracy aid, right? So thinking about you know, how the U.S. can maybe work with other donor states to encourage different forms or to support different aspects of democracy, um, to support uh, civil society. Um, you know, maybe it's also like, again, you know, maybe it's the case in these situations that the U.S. just should be honest about its strategic interests and say, look, we, if we're not prepared to really fully back and support the people on the ground that we're supporting with democracy aid, then maybe we just have to acknowledge that we can't operate in this space at this time. Um, and so these are some of the harder questions I think that people are wrestling with. Um, you know, one thing I would want to say is that, you know, you know, when we think about does, is this aid working, if you ask, you know, uh, somebody on the ground, and I'll just say hypothetically in Cairo, um, who might have received, you know, um, you know, some components of democracy aid to support um, a project on uh, supporting, um, uh, gender issues, gender development, uh, civil society, you know, whatever, uh, whatever their organization might have been, you know, if you were to ask them, did, did, receiving, did receiving that grant help you? And they said yes. Then to me and to them as well, like some aspects of that are working, right? You know, it helped, you know, um, uh, facilitate a conference that they wanted to have. It facilitated a conversation, et cetera, right? So did this aid help? Yes, in this micro instance, right? But how do we add all of these things up um, over time? And that's, again, this is a harder thing for a donor state to sort of, you know, talk about that in a meaningful way in Washington to get, you know, sustained support for these forms of, of programs. 
And also, again, obviously, Egypt being an example here, too, um, if giving aid is going to, um, uh, you know, have a, an impact or, you know, place someone on the ground in danger, right, this is an important ethical consideration, too, I think. Um, is receiving money from the United States for a particular kind of program going to put um, uh, an actor in civil society at risk? Um, then that's something I think that you know should be part of the discussion as well. Yeah, but don't you think the opposite would be kind of just reinforcing this authoritarian regime? Like it would be like if you stop for ethical considerations that you know you might be putting people and organizations at uh, at danger. Yeah. Um, well, that kind of enshrines even the authoritarian regimes further. Yeah, it could. And, and some people on this point, it's a great point, have said, okay, well, again, if you're just concerned, if you're not understanding, if you don't feel confident with how with being able to, to work with people on the ground and, and you know, being confident that the, the government, whether it's Egypt or any place else, is going to you know, go after people and repress people, jail people, et cetera, um, then again, maybe you don't, maybe you sort of stop funding, but you, elevate the importance of supporting democracy, human rights, et cetera, with the government, right? So at one point in the book, I think I say that, okay, there are some places and spaces throughout the world where it's just simply not as possible to work um, as in other states, you know, in the world, right? But there is some value, I think, to rhetorically supporting this, right? So, you know, for example, the U.S. elevating, because I don't, I think we've seen a real, um, you know, demotion, right, of this subject matter, right, of democracy aid, of civil support for human rights, civil society, with this administration, and even, again, in the previous administrations, obviously, as well, too. Um, and so maybe one thing positive I can say, I could say about the Bush administration is at least rhetorically, they were talking about it at the highest levels with their counterparts in the Egyptian government. So whether that's those discussions, I think, are public or private, it at least is saying, again, rhetorically, this is important. We think this is an important part of things that you should be focused on, et cetera. It doesn't fix anything, I think, but many people have said um, that, look, merely talking about it and keeping it you know, at the very top of any sort of diplomatic agenda maybe makes it you know, um, less likely that the governments are going to disappear people, right? If they're under scrutiny or if, if this is something that a, a powerful uh, state like the United States is, is consistently talking about. Um, again, that's. I mean, there's a big question mark on that, but I think there is some some logic with that. So as a closing uh, question, closing uh, remark, um, okay. do you see any potential for real democratization in Egypt and in the Middle East in general? Do you see that as a possibility? For democratization? democratization. Yeah. In general? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, obviously if I, if you're, for anyone who reads the news uh, these days, uh, I would just say in general in the world, given the, the uh, disturbing um, um, uh, rise of authoritarianism just in general in the world uh, and the rise of far right politics in general, you know, it would make any, again, anyone who reads the news, I think pessimistic about things. Um, but I, and I think certainly the case in, in Egypt is um, again, in, in the context of the changes that happen and thinking about where we are now versus 2011, um, frankly, depressing, obviously. Um, but I take, I take a long view of history, you know, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot in, in studying um, other revolutionary mo moments throughout the world, is that, again, as it has been said many times, you know, with regards to the American Revolution, uh, with um, what was happening in Europe in 1848, what was happening, you know, with the French Revolution, etc., is that 
you know, things take time um, and revolutions are contentious politics in general is messy. And so I have, I have a lot of hope, I think. Um, maybe not, I mean, to be quite frank in the next couple of years, but I, I, I think that, you know, um, there are extraordinary, extraordinary citizens uh, in Egypt and there's an enormous amount of talent. Um, and I think that when you look at statistics, like, you know, the, the large number of, uh, of, uh, of, of youth comprising the populations throughout the Arab world in particular, I mean, that inherently makes me optimistic. Um, it inherently makes me optimistic about uh, where things are going, but I think it's a, I think it's a long road. Definitely. Thank you so much, Dr. Snyder, for coming on the podcast and for sharing your research and your work. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. And for listeners, Dr. Snyder's book, Marketing Democracy, it's available on Amazon and on the website. I leave the link in the description and I highly recommend you get yourself a copy. Thank you so much for listening. ضد العنصرية للقنابل وجه شرق أوسطية